Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Talking Drum, Cornjaw's limited podcast series where we explore the aesthetic and affective links in Africa's musical echo chamber through conversations with cultural producers, DJs, researchers and musicians from various geographies across Africa and the African diaspora. My name is Zara Julius, Konjo founder and your host for the season. This week, we're joined by Sudanese musician and ethnomusicologist Al-Sara, lead vocalist of Al-Sara and the New Batones. In this episode, Al-Sara and I speak on the weaponization of music as propaganda by the state in Sudan, both historically and in the wake of Sudan's 2018-2019 revolution, and somehow find room for laughter amongst the absurdity. In many ways, this discussion is a continuation of our last episode and that it further explores the failures of the concept of the nation state, Orientalism as it relates to East Africa and North Africa, as well as the legacies of not just European colonization, but also that of the Turk and so-called Arab empires in these regions. In this episode, we also hear um, snippets of a conversation between Al-Sara and Tamado Sheikh Aldin, uh, who is a uh, incredible kind of music curator with a very diverse background um, in the arts. Talking the drum with Alsada. Enjoy. Awesome. Well, welcome, Alsada. Thank you so much for joining the Talking Drum podcast. I'm super excited to chat with you today. Um, you sent through a whole bunch of tracks <laughs> based on, the, on a short conversation we had and these, my mind just kind of going through these songs, my mind kind of is blown in, in so many different ways, but we'll get to that. Um, I wonder if you don't mind just introducing yourself. Um, you're like Beyonce, you just go by like one name, which I love. <laughs> yes, just like Beyonce, I am. <laughs> I go by one name because really you could just think of me as the Beyonce of Sudan. No, I'm not. I'm just kidding. I'm not the Beyonce of Sudan. I don't want to pretend. Um, there is more famous people. But um, I like to think that I have the same um, I don't need nobody kind of attitude about it. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my name is Ansara. I was born in Khartoum, Sudan. Um, I live in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I'm a musician. I'm a singer, songwriter a band leader and uh, an ethnomusicologist and yeah uh, I am here for the independent sound all day every day. Great um, and I wonder if you can kind of just give us some background for those who aren't familiar with like your work um, in terms of you know so you're, you're based in, in, in Brooklyn New York but you're also still incredibly invested in in, in East Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what does that look like in your practice? Um, that kind that, of investment? That kind of investment for me looks like, uh, I mean, for me, from an artistic perspective, it's keeping up with the artistic scene there. Um, for, not just for identity reasons, mostly also for fan reasons. I love being a fan. So for me, it looks like that. For me, it also looks like, um, continuing my research and my building and my knowledge um, with the region. And 
for me, I guess I, I think of music as a circle and I think of the world as a circle. And I think um, we are not as isolated or separate from each other as we think. And I am here to sort of connect the dots. And I feel like music being a sonic historian, it's one of the easier ways to do that. Um, and we live in a global era and the exchange between Africa and America is older than me, actually. Um, and so for me, just it feels natural that you stay connected to both. I think of, of someone um, of my someone in the, the kind of life that I had, I think of myself more like a bridge between places and between communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's also, I suppose as a South African, like we, like there was a time where there were, was a supposed like diaspora in a way, mm -hmm. or there was a time where the, a lot of folks were kind of living in exile, right? But that doesn't really apply to contemporary South Africanness, I suppose, in, in, in quite the same way that I think um, notions of exile and notions of uh, diasporic being can, you know, resonate um, within Sudan mm. in like very, very strong ways. Um, um, and I'm wondering like the ways in which this experience of being part of, I suppose, the Sudanese diaspora um, allows for, you know, like maintaining, maintaining an active, an active kind of relationship with not just the continent, but also um, Sudan as I suppose your quote unquote motherland. I hate that <laughs> term, but I just used it. You know, I think, yeah, Sudan's been in flux and in struggle um, for a really long time, I think, through its modern history since its independence in 1956. And as things took um, a more uh, economically desperate turn, especially after the 1989 coup, um, it's kind of led to a real bleed of the community, uh, of the uh, a real bleed, really, of the population. You, there was a time period where you needed to have someone in any household living abroad in order for for people to survive. Um, and also, as I think, as a land with a lot of nomadic communities still outside of Khartoum, the idea of movement is um, not very foreign to us. Um, a lot of us have migrated already, you know, from my family, the idea of displacement isn't new as Nubians who left like the country home or the, 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 the village home uh, when the high dam was built and relocated to different urban centers from, you know, Khartoum to Cairo to the Gulf. Um, the idea of nostalgia and diaspora feels like it was hammered into me before even my generation which is, um, I actually think is interesting considering the way we think of movement as something that belongs to the West, when I think of movement as something that's actually quite traditional and as the oldest form of, uh, the oldest tactic for human survival. A hundred percent. And I think it's actually, uh, I don't know, I, I've been thinking about this a lot, especially through doing this project. Um, the ways in which uh, I feel like South Africans don't move in quite the same ways that folks do on the rest of the continent, right, for various reasons. Mm. Um, and there's really quite, for lack of a better term, like a parochial 
kind of mentality here obviously because apartheid like necessitated that right mm, mm. but prior to that all these borders were not of our making you know obviously mm. um and so movement is actually part of how different like um kingdoms and different like societies kind of grew and developed on the continent mm. you know mm -hmm. um not just in terms of folks who are um where a nomadic lifestyle is like central to to their own cultural or like community but even folks where there is a more sedentary um lifestyle mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. um and a more like agricultural lifestyle movement has always been part of of civilization on the continent totally um but we pretend like yeah africa deepest darkest continent um, i mean that is that is the ultimate colonial myth you know and i think it's it's always been used to convince Africans themselves of the fact that they are not as cosmopolitan as they truly are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the idea of diversity comes from bringing in an otherness from the outside, whereas we're plenty diverse inside here already. Um, and we've always also moved. Again, I just cannot stress that enough. Always moved, <laughs> you know? And I think even in South Africa, there was a lot of... Um, historical um, movement on ships of course um, that is also always undervalued and underestimated um, but yeah yeah I don't know where I was going with that but yeah <laughs> no for sure for sure um, so I first kind of came across you and your work through um, the film Beats of the Antonov uh, by Hajuj Kuka. Yes. Um, obviously, there was a collaboration between, it was a, yeah, I suppose it was a Sudanese, a South Sudanese, and a, and a South African production mm -hmm. um, in, in many ways. Um, and then subsequently, somewhat upon your music with Al Sara and the Nubatones. Mm -hmm. And I was like, hang on, this person looks really familiar. Why do they look so familiar? And then I was like, oh, okay, cool. She's also the ethnomusicologist that was in this incredible documentary yeah. um, that does a really beautiful job, I think, um, both you and, and uh, Hajuj do a really beautiful job of um, speaking about, I suppose, like vernacular sounds in, in a way that does not um, other, in a way that does not um, stagnate mm. as well, but like really understanding the ways in which music and culture and resistance is like inherently dynamic mm -hmm. um and that you know that inherent movement um you know the film you know speaks to from my understanding is kind of looking at the the civil war in sudan mm -hmm. and how um the separate you know the the civil war is really an an issue of like identity Mm. where there's like so-called North Sudan is trying to is trying to push on the kind of like I mean the I, the war in so Sudan I think as a young country is a perfect example of how the concept of nation state has failed completely um especially when it doesn't ad address the micro identities in it in a way that acknowledges all the prejudices past um Sudan's relationship with uh, its various regions is very much based on a colonial concept and approach to the country with this idea that Arab Muslim identity is inherently superior and has access and rights to take anything in Sudan from everybody else. And the idea that if you wanted to be Sudanese, you needed to belong to that when the majority of Sudanese people are neither Arabs or Muslim. Um, 
which is how we ended up separating. But a lot of the Civil War is also about resources. Um, where are the natural resources located and how do we want to take them? Um, because Sudan's history before there was the British colonization, there was the, the Turco-Egyptian colonization as well. So the idea of Arab control of the region and of resources isn't brand new in the conversation. And to try to pretend that that never happened in the way we never really discuss um, the Arab and Turkish presence in East Africa and how violent it was. Um, if we don't address that and how we still look at our resources um, and our our entitlement to our resources in Sudan, if we don't really ap at approach that and address it uh, fully, you can't really, you can't undo um, the systemic racism that we basically tried to build. Um, placing mm -hmm. one identity as a top supreme and everyone else as second rate. Um, music and art um, have always have always had a hand with the way regimes shape um, the way they want to disperse identity everywhere in the world. And I think on the African mm -hmm. continent, from South Africa all the way to North Africa, you see that very clearly because we've had so many young revolutions since our attempts at independence from the late from the mid 50s until the 90s um and we're still in the struggle of trying to gain independence from these colonial forces economically um mm. so music for me i feel like for me and i i would generalize and say across africa has always had a huge and important role in the way we approach our understanding of the nation state and the way we disper we also understand and um, re repeat and share revolutionary stories and stories in general. And that has also a lot to do with culture, you know. Um, mm. In Sudan, we have a strong culture of uh, a genre of music called Aghani al-Hamas, which are basically war songs made to, to excite the warriors into fighting. Uh, and al-hakamat, and these are beautiful traditional things that many, many tribes and regions around the world have. This tradition of, of um, if you if you engage in a lot of skirmishes over resources in small ways, you know, it, I, I don't know how. I mean, al-ghani al-hakamat are it's, they're war songs. Um, mm -hmm. So having had that in our in our culture and in our history already, um, as soon as we gained our independence, music became really a part of how. We wanted to talk about revolution and we wanted to talk about the Sudanese identity. And we used music also as a way to establish a systemic racism, centralizing the music all coming out of Khartoum, uh, making a point of making all that music happen mostly in Arabic, um, mm. and uh, really kind of deciding wh what is a respectable kind of art versus not and placing one on top of the other. Um, all of that, to me, ties in hand in hand to where we are today in our understanding of our music and our identity through our music in Sudan in general. Um, they're all connected to each other, um, down mm. to the way we even used music in this last revolution of 2019. Um, uh, people sampling speeches, people sampling uh, traditional things and using them to have uh, revolutionary anthems. Not very unusual if you go back you know, to the April uh, the April 6th revolution, the October revolution, the May revolution, the independence, you know, go as far as we want to go back. It, it, music is a fundamental part of that.
Mm-hmm. I think this was a really great um, moment to jump into maybe our first track. I think you did a great job of kind of introducing what it is we're here to speak about today. The first track we had was this fucking outrageous military's opera. Yes, 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 yes. Let's start there. That's a great place. Because that's where I really, this is what started the conversation in my mind. Because listening to this, okay. uh, this ridiculous thing was just, wow. So let's listen. Shall we?
So at the end of January of 2020, um, this track came out titled The Military's Opera. Um, and it's a 15-minute malhama. Like, basically, yeah, like a little opera with like a with various uh, musicians, uh, so really Sudan's top musicians. Um, uh, so if you go down the list of credits, it's just like, it's got anybody and everybody in Sudan that's really, um, that really does music and is considered in any way popular from the official professional teams. Um, and even mm -hmm. the people that are involved in the production, it's basically the everyone in Sudan, yeah? This 15-minute track features really some of very revolutionary names like Ashar Habil, like um, Abdel Qadir Salim, like Amusili, people who are known to be very for the people. Uh, Nadal Gala, who's a local singer, um, a traditional popular singer that does uh, wedding music and traditional music and pop music. Um, Hanan Bulubulu uh, of the same genre and era, but before her. Um, all of that is uh, all these people involved so basically anybody that I grew up listening to and mm -hmm. it got me to thinking and I was just like this does not feel like it's the first time this has ever happened um, you've got Tarbas uh, sorry I'm, I'm looking you've got um, when you think back to it I remember a time when Wardi um, who's considered really the voice of the people and the voice of the revolution one of the most popular Sudanese musicians um, uh, the his song is also included in this list, we'll listen to it later, um, had actually gone back and sung um, for Nimeri, the former dictator in the 70s, who was first to introduce the um, Sharia laws and kind of start a civil war. Okay, so just for people who are not, you know, um, hip, I suppose, to Sudan's kind of political history, um, so when you say revolutionary, are you referring to like the 1985 revolution or when you say revolutionary, I'm, I'm just wondering what you're referring to? So there um, was the 1985 revolution and before it there was uh, the 1969 revolution mm -hmm. and before that there was Sudan's independence in 1956. Great. Um, and the, the, the 1969 revolution um, led to a new regime change and a couple of, led to Nimeri coming in and then a couple of years later um, there was a coup against him in May of I want to say 71 I gotta look it up don't quote me May <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it was 71 or 72 May 25th I'll put a lot of resources in the show notes. Um, Let's not get cool. into the history. I want to talk about the music. No, for sure, for sure. It's just good to situate timelines. Totally, to totally, totally. To. Yes, absolutely, you are correct. This is just a quick wiki on that particular revolution. I'm also going to give... <laughs> <laughs> because there were literally millions of fucking revolutions. Exactly, exactly. Sudan. I was just like, what are you talking about, yo? We, like, we have mastered the art of revolting. <laughs> <laughs> like South Africans love a fucking protest to no end. Yeah. And Sudanese folks love a revolution. 
Also Kunoan. I mean, so far we have failed at it hard. <laughs> we failed every single time, you know, but we keep trying, yo. My people keep trying. They're like, we're ready. Change. <laughs> we got hope. We're almost utopic in our thought process about revolutions. Our belief in the capacity for change is so brilliant. I really respect my people for that. I wish I was a quarter <laughs> as optimistic about humanity and the world. A quarter. That would just... Man, it must be a good way to live. I feel like we should come, we should join our nation's forces in, totally. in some types of ways. Like we love a toy toy, we love like a mass, a mass movement, you know, <laughs> but we don't know shit about a revolution. I mean, the people that killed our people in apartheid are still ro roaming free. You I know? know, I know. <laughs> but you know what? The people that killed our people in the 2019 like revolution are still, they're actually not just running free, they're in charge of things. It's real. It's um, very, very real. Um, but okay, let's go back to this, 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 this opera. I really yes. want to get into it. Yes, so this 15-minute saga. <laughs> right, so this song has got all the people um, that you kind of grew up listening to, and you were saying that these are like revolutionary voices, correct? Some of, some of them are revolutionary voices. Some of them are just regular pop singers that really don't have any political leanings whatsoever. But for me, mm -hmm. like the most shocking was Sharhabil Abdelgadir Salim al-Musli. Um, seeing those names in such a pro-military song, especially at a time like this when Sudan is actively engaged in war with, with inside Ethiopia, our like sister nation basically, you know, and sending military, uh, like basically sending mercenaries to Yemen, like all kinds of messy things to come on, mm. especially in the heels of this revolution we are, we have basically lost, but we need to continue the work of to, it just mm. it was really shocking for me especially the the way we look at artists and the way we consider artists in Sudan I mean and I think all around the world artists are considered you know the um the symbol of of morality sometimes mm. I mean maybe not mm -hmm. in the west but <laughs> but over there so for me it was super shocking to see this I was honestly stunned when it came on and it was not a cheap production it was a major production. Um, and that got me thinking back to also uh, somebody like, um, so during the, the beginning of the 2019 revolution, um, like uh, at the end of it, um, in, Saf, in the middle of it, I would say, in Saf Medani, uh, who's a popular singer also in Sudan, a very popular traditional singer, uh, did a pro-Bashir song in the beginning of the revolution. And mm -hmm. everyone was so angry with her and canceled her. And it made me start to think as I was thinking to myself, it's just like, who has the power as an artist to say yes or no to a regime? And especially when you don't know where the cards are going to lay. You know, it needs to be people with um, a certain kind of privilege, really, and a certain level of, of, of financial independence, of movement independence, and of political backbone, right? You need to have a form of privilege to be, able, to be able to afford your morals, to be honest, if we really start to look at morality in that sense. Um, mm. And, you know, because after that, you know, and everyone was very angry and canceled her and they threw her out of the headquarters. Um, she had an interview where she was speaking about the fact that she was in a lot of debt. She's just like, I was in a lot of debt and they threatened to take me to jail if I didn't pay my debts. And they told me if I sing this song, I would have all my debts cleared and have some extra cash. She's a simple woman from a simple background. This was very 
made honestly it made sense to me um yeah for sure and um so tamadur sheikh Din is a uh, sudanese um sudanese actor uh writer painter poet um activist and all in all just like a baddie you know she can she's a renaissance woman and i was speaking to her because i knew she knew a lot about I really knew a lot about Sudanese artists that came before my generation that kind of were towards the end of it, which included Sharhabil and, uh, and um, Al-Musli and Abdel Qadir Salim. And I wanted to ask her, I was like, so how do you feel, you know, having seen this video? I showed her the video. How do you feel about this, considering the way you grew up? And she sent me a lot of video links by these very, very popular um, and considered very left-wing writers and, and musicians. Um, even Wardi, who was the voice of the revolution and the voice of the people, after mm. Nimeri took over, how he sang for Nimeri, a pro-Nimeri song, and then a bunch of pro-regime songs, and a lot of other artists did. And she started talking me through the steps of all of them had to either, if they didn't have to actually sing for the president or the regime, <coughs> had to sing um, in front of him. So she says, this isn't abnormal at all. But for me, it was like, so why would the revolt, uh, why, why, I don't know, why isn't, for me, there's, of course, the question of gender and class as to why in South Medina would get so much heat. But then those guys don't when they've done this multiple times. Mm. And that's sort of what led us into, for me, like kind of circles back to like, who can afford their morality in art? You know? Mm. And what Which is such a potent question. Because yeah. Because artists who need to eat, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Artists need to eat. They're, at the end of the day, engaged in a social service. And for a lot of them, some of them are very politically active, active but some of them are not. They're just simple folks that want to sing. Tamado Shekhardin in conversation with Al-Sara. The political situation in Sudan is not clear right now. Mm. It's very confusing. We don't mm. know what's happening in Sudan. Do we belong to Amarat or Saudi Arabia or Egypt? Are we good with America or not? Are we, is, is Israel inside the, 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 there is a lot of things that's happening. Who is, who is good and who is bad? So, you know, sometimes I feel, I feel bad for these people because they are simple-minded and mm. they think that they are doing the right thing, I guess. You know, it is not an excuse. But sometimes I feel like they were, because the situation was very oppressive and, the, and people were like, uh, you either have something to do with the government and you become stable financially and everything, mm. or against it and you just just get lost, you know? You know, a lot of names, a lot of names wearing the military. Mm-hmm. And we see is, the, he's a great musician. Mm-hmm. He's talking about it now in the media. Like, mm-hmm. he did that for the army. We're not mm-hmm. talking about that. But the army, what is, what is the army now? Who, who is the army now? Hamid the P. army is unknown. And you are, you are it's, a per, it's a personal apparatus now. Exactly. It's a private you, apparatus. Exactly. And you preach, are you preaching the war in Sudan? You, you're preaching the war with, with, with your neighbor, Ethiopia, the people that love us to death. Yeah. 
the people who admire our our music, our culture, why do you preach pre that? Our family, like we're basically family. We are the same people. Why yeah. do you why do you want to promote that? It's it's not a good idea by any means. Mm. No matter what they say about it, it wasn't. You know, usually we're used to more political figures happening in poetry, in uh, theater, <clears throat> um, now film, because they can be more politicized um, mediums. Um, musicians, though, we don't think of as being weaponized by the state very much, when very much they can be. Um, and yeah. yeah, so how does the state weaponize art and why? Mm -hmm. But for those listening, it's super important to go to the show notes and watch this video. Yeah. Because the video and then the production quality really demonstrates the extent to which um, the amount this of money regime, yeah, is, is willing to go mm -hmm. um, for this particular agenda, right? Exactly. Um, and who owns this military? Is this a private military? Because right now, this new regime is not even supposed to be permanent, there's supposed to be a transition. So I'm just, this is why I'm like, I'm very confused. I was like, who's paying for all this? Who owns this stuff? <laughs> I mean, or maybe everybody's just itching for a check, yo. You know, 2019, the economy came to a halt in Sudan. 2020, COVID, come now. Mm. <clears throat> People need to eat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. I mean, you know, what you just said is, is, is really important. It's like we often think of, of music um, at least on the continent, is really being tied to revolution mm. and, and resistance and struggle, but we rarely think about how the state weaponizes it. Mm -hmm. um, we think of how the state um, assassinates particular musicians. I mean, Angola is an incredibly um, like explicit example of, of that type of thing happening, mm -hmm. where a lot of uh, revolutionary musicians were, were assassinated. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't think about how the state like uses music to weaponize um, a particular kind of, yeah, weaponizes music to, to um, spread a particular type of agenda or, or message. But this also, when you sent this to me, and yeah, the, the first thing I thought about was, so I've recently been like exploring part of, of, of um, Gallo Records' um, archives, right? Ooh. And so I, just like what stuff that they released like during the 80s and whatever but i recently went to their website to see what they had released recently because i'm not you know um hip to like who gallo has on their books or whatever mm. and the first thing i came across which is incredible is an album that gallo released by the sandf the south african national defense force <laughs> and i was like oh my god sudan and south africa are in the same whatsapp group when it comes to this also but the difference is that it's, you know, the um, South African National Defense Force, like choir and, and orchestra. Actually, I'm lying. The South African National Defense Force orchestra, right? Playing music to the Orlando Pirates football club choir, right? Given that South Africa has an incredibly rich, like, choir Christian culture. choral music tradition. Yeah, right? totally. So it's like pairing these two things together and then the best part about it is that they sample, everyone loves a sample in 2020, they sample in our president Cyril Ramaphosa's speeches, COVID-19 speeches, into the tracks, because he, 
<laughs> he starts every he starts every speech with my fellow South Africans, and so he, they sample like half of these things in. Oh my! Also bearing in mind that the South African National Defence Force was like in charge of um, supposedly like ensuring COVID nineteen lockdown regulations, right? Um, and also killed multiple people in the process. I was of, just gonna say, I was like, so. how violent was this ensuring? No, I mean, of course. I mean, yeah, the South African uh, Police Service, South African National Defence Force, they love a casual killing and, like, getting away with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is what this opera that you sent me reminded me of was this album that kind of, like, blew my mind because we're, you know, quite different to, to Sudan. We don't put the military in the forefront of almost anything. Mm. It's rare that you even see the military, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, um, so in Sudan, it should be rare you see them too. People like hated mm -hmm. the military for so long because there was a lot of there was a a draft, a mandatory draft for many many years, and they were just like they would gather kids and off the streets at a certain point and just kind of throw them in these uh, training camps and send them off to different regions in the country to fight. So for me to see this, everyone putting on their uniforms and being like, yeah, our military. I was like, our military what? Like. All they've done is, <laughs> all our military has done for the last 40 years is kill Sudanese. <laughs> like, what? Mm. You know, and mm -hmm. so for me to see these artists now, when the military is engaged in killing Ethiopians instead of Sudanese, still, it just, it blew my mind. It blew my mind. I, I just could not. So for me, like, it just kind of, I was like, okay, so before we've done this, we do this, we keep doing this over and over. I felt like I was watching history repeat itself. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Especially when we're coming off of a lot of the, the, the songs that became really popular during the revolution were, you know, for example, that, that the song that uses the, the famous speech by al-Bashir um, when, the, when the revolution started at the end of 2018. Um, he gave a speech and some an unknown producer this producer is still unknown by the way this is one of the most popular songs that was played around mm -hmm. the headquarters and in different places it's one of my personal favorites um but he sampled the speech and chopped it out and it became it just spread like wildfire um mm -hmm. and then you had so many other youth creating music for the revolution had so many other artists creating music for the revolution, you know, even Shad Habil created songs for the revolution, just this last revolution. So I'm just like, what's going on? And now he's in this opera. And now he's in this opera. So I'm just, mm -hmm. it again begs the question of who can afford their morality and when the state wants to weaponize the artists, who has the power to say no, you know? Right. And right. it's next when the repercussions of saying no are like incredibly violent than just like not being able to afford to live. Exactly. Like. A really famous case of that is the case of Khojali Osman, who was killed in the early 1990s. Um, nobody, you know, wants to say the truth, but it's a well-known story of what happened to him. The regime asked him to smuggle um, to smuggle a couple of uh, national security members into his uh, entourage, his touring band, and because um, he had a show uh, coming up, a famous concert coming up in Ethiopia, and uh, the president, uh, the former president of Egypt, Hosni Mubarak, was supposed to be there, and there was an attempt on his life, and they wanted to, they wanted to kill him. And um, they wanted to sneak in through uh, Khojali's band. Khojali said no, 
he goes and comes back from his trip. Khojali is murdered outside of the musicians' club. Um, Abdel Ghadir Salim is there. Um, and that's when really you start to see a lot of artists uh, during the early 90s appear in uniform. People were being gathered up, being tortured, being threatened, being killed. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, un I, I understand fear. I do. I mm. really do. I'm just wondering, how, is there a fear we're not even talking about right now that's happening in Sudan that's perhaps a little bit behind the curtains? How bad is it mm. going to get? You know, right. who owns Sudan right now? Who owns us? Right, especially because it's like this kind of amorphous um, transitionary government that is kind of um, supposedly not supposed to have a agenda, right? Exactly. Um, I wonder, let's jump into one of um, Khokhali's, um, am I pronouncing him correctly, Khokhali Osman? Yeah, Khojali Osman. Khojali Osman. Let's jump into, into that track, if you can just um, give us the title of the song. Yes, I believe the song that I sent you is Asma'na Marra.
شايل جئنا حبيبة بس ما track that I did with a French producer named De Bruy, um many years ago, many, many years ago. We titled it Alcon Beledi. Um, so I think um, we can also jump into the, the Revolution Viral song that, that you mentioned as well. Sure, yeah. Um, um, I, I don't know if it has a name, <laughs> you know, we, we just <laughs> honestly... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if this song has a name um, because we don't know who wrote it. We just it kind of came out of nowhere. It was really inspiring to me. But um, let's see what the guy wrote. Yeah, they're just calling it "Tas Good Best." "Tas Good Best" was the the the, an, the, um, the slogan of the revolution, which means mm-hmm. "just fall." It means what? Just fall. Okay. So okay, so basically, it's like fallist. It's like a continuation of fallist. Um, yeah, um, like the idea. Like wording. Yeah, exactly. That's good best. So it just, which mean, yeah. So that that was what they, he titled the song even, and he put it out. And you, this is the link that I sent you is um, up by somebody like a private user, but it was all over the place. You'll find it on a lot of different YouTube channels. Hey, <laughs> 
أجعل الله مساك والمشاهدين الكرام أهلا أهل القوم ومرهما ما بيقبل لنفس الزوار أهل الطريق اليوم قال أهل الطريق كلمتهم يفك تبعك المفجوع يود الخير عليه زاد اسم لقمة بيناتهم حتى كان بدور مفجوع حتى كان بدور مفجوع اسم لقمة بيناتهم يود الخير ويد الزاد حتى كان بدور بلادي أمان وناس حوران بلادي أمان وناس حوران بلادي أمان وناس حوران بلادي أمان وناس حوران بلادي أنا تشير الناس بلادي أنا تشير الناس بلادي أنا تشير الناس بلادي أنا تشير الناس ضل يا أولاد المدارس So the speech was um, anti-revolutionaries and it was, uh, Bashir came on to say that all those people that are gathering uh, in front of the headquarters, all those people that are protesting, that they're all mercenaries, that they're all uh, thugs, that they're all uh, for hire, um, that they're basically uh, low-life riffraffs, that kind of thing. And so what the guy did is he chopped up the speech so that it sounds like Al-Bashir is saying this about himself. Okay. And about his regime. It's interesting because it's actually familiar, right? Because did Al-Bashir not say that the prior regime that he ousted during the, what is it, the 89 coup d'etat mm-hmm. was um, putting like religion for hire, was, was kind of like... Yes. His rhetoric. Yep, absolutely. So kind of just telling people that they're all using things for hire mm-hmm. when it's useful for him, right? Completely, especially when like part of 
what I mean, right before this, and he's giving this speech, he literally was hiring out Sudan's military for private mercenary use in Yemen and in different places. So the irony of our ironies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder, for those who are not aware, like what the determining characteristics are of, 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 of his regime um, and, and why it's important for a song like this um, that is, you know, essentially an, from an anonymous producer and goes viral, like, how, like why a song like this becomes really potent and, and resonates with what is essentially a populist re- revolution? Um, I mean, uh, the, the fundamental cornerstones of al-Bashir's regime was the fact that it's supposed to be an Islamist, Arab-centered regime that puts uh, Sharia law first and puts Sudan first and a creation of a nation state that is wealthy. Um, his whole thing was about that. Uh, he used the first 10 years of that regime was um, invested in proactive torturing of the population. Ghost houses uh, were very, very prominent. Torture even in um, inside regular jail cells, even if you weren't sent to a torture house was very common mm-hmm. so and this the creation of uh, a morality police to pa- to control the movement of people outside on the streets um the introduction uh well sharia law was introduced by nimeri in 69 uh, well a couple of years after 69 like, it was things like 70 or beginning of 71 that he started it um and um he so it, it was more, it felt like an ex- a, a deeper extension of Numeri's regime, actually, um, mm. and more violent and more, um, and it had even less loyalty, you know, at least um, with, with Bashir's regime, it became known there was really no loyalty but money, whereas before there was um, even, even with the corruption wasn't, uh, I don't want to sound naive and say corruption wasn't as prominent because it was, but it was, there was this idea that if you belong to a party that there was a sense of loyalty towards that party and within the party towards each other. With Bashir, especially towards the end, it became a free-for-all. You really mm-hmm. didn't know where you stand, I guess. Right. Well, did his, did his vice president not also set him out? Yes, exactly what happened. Yes, that's literally what happened. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I mean, I've been trying to do some reading, like reminding myself of like kind of what happened because I did a lot of reading during the revolution Mm -hmm. and I'm like trying to remind myself and it's like incredibly, incredibly complex um, political dynamics. Oh, totally. Because everyone's betraying everyone, yet everyone knows everyone, yet everyone's in bed with everyone. But there and there's just new people coming in, like it's so fast from the wings. Exactly, <laughs> and to me, this is like, were they always there? Who are these people? And and so it's just, and now with this revolution taking place, you still have so many of the same people and the same names in the judiciary systems and in the um, and in the policing system. So it just it's it becomes really strange to think of what is change and what will it look like for real? Is it a real revolution? Mm-hmm. There's, yeah, there's, there's a lot here. I mean, I wonder if there's any tracks from your conversation that you want to feed in at this moment? Yeah. You know what? This would be a good time to jump into Nancy Ajaj's song, Min mm-hmm. Aina Ya'tiha Ula. 
I read the translation of that song, but now I've forgotten what it means. Birth, right? That's what the song means. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, basically, those who have stolen the bread out of the, mouth, the, the mouths of the hungry um, and smeared, I think, yeah. Yeah, uh, smeared uh, the smeared the innocent. Um, I think the rest of the I'm sp- I I give very awkward translations. That's all. I mean, I've got it written here in English. Oh, as well. perfect, perfect. Um, but you know, f- so this song, the context of this song is also you know, I'm assuming kind of was coming out of that 20, 2018, 2019 revolution, which fr- by the sounds of things, it really sparked like a like a huge kind of cultural and creative um, buzz, I suppose, right? Like it was really, a lot of folks seem to be producing a lot of music. Um, and so I can read the, the English translation for those who might be interested um, that I found. And it, said, it says, um, would they with the same ruthlessness turn towards the innocent, turn it against those who have robbed the hungry of bread? Would they, with the same gluttony for bloodshed, return an inch of those um, of the lost homeland? But in their wretchedness and deceit, it was they who brought ruin and humiliation upon the people. From whence did they come? Yeah. Um, imprison me and become president. Let the people taste misery. Mm-hmm. So hectic. Um, from whence did they come? Um, and to which religion do they belong? They look not like the people in my country. They do not belong to our land. From whence did they come to rule?
The lyrics were written by um, a guy named Faisal Abdel Halim. And the melody and the performance is by Nancy Ajaj herself. Uh, and the production is by Assamani Hajju, who is a Sunnese multi-instrumentalist and producer who also has another song that went viral during the revolution, actually. Um, that went viral before this track with Nancy came out, and then him and Nancy collaborated on this. I'm just giving a timeline. Okay. This no, is all within cool. a few months of each other, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it seemed, at least from the outside, that things were moving so quickly. Mm. Um, and even, and I suppose that's often reflected in like the cultural production that's coming out of that, right? Exactly, exactly. Wow. So first, Semeni's track, the one that I sent you, with him sampling Wardi and the kids, this one, this one came out first and went out, went super, super viral. And then him and Nancy did a track together. Um, yeah, this one came out at the end of December and him and Nancy released that track in February. Um, and Nancy's very, very popular resistance singer and has been since before then. She's very well known for her leftist views. Uh, she's based out in the Gulf. So okay. yeah. Well, let's maybe jump into that song with Al-Samani Haju. Yeah. Something Warti and the kids. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> Well, 
الشرطة والأمن بتفريقها بالقوة وكذلك استخدمت الغاز المسيل للدموع بالإضافة إلى الرصاص الحي وفقا لمصادر طبية التي أكدت وقوع عدد من الحالات والإصابات بعضها خطرة بعضها طلق ناري في الرأس إحنا فرقنا أي زور وقف فينا عمل العلو يا بنحيس أحضر يا بنموت رجال
Um, so I guess the question then would be, you know, the significance of sampling um, Mohammed Wardi. Right? Yes. Um, in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the ways in which there's a kind of a call and response to these different types of revolutions that are occurring that are in many ways quite similar because they're still fighting against the same things in, in similar types of regimes, right? And, yes, exactly. And so the original Wardi revolution song sampled, I sent you the track link for it. Um, this one is uh, It's really, really well-known song. importance of sampling Wardi because of that place in his past um, it and having him be really the voice of revolution to me it, it made sense then to really um, discuss with Tamadur how she felt watching Wardi um, mm. sing to Nimeri after he was the voice of the revolution with this very song so Wardi is in everybody's heart I mean as the, the founder of the revolution Exactly. So mm. his voice, the word that was written for the, the lyrics for those songs and the songs and the, everything, they just stay in our heart and make us feel like we love Sudan. Mm. This is the connection. You know why did they forgive him? Because Mayu came with 
agenda that looks like okay this is the socialism this is like a this is like a the the, the community <laughs> i mean uh, communist the communist party this is you know and these people are leftists the people who wrote the lyrics to these songs are people who are very respectful like mahjoub sharif mahjoub mm. sharif is is the, the 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 point of the of the of the, of people. the people yeah and he's always in the people side mm-hmm. so so that was like it, it was an a, this, uh, like an unfortunate incident because they thought that this was the right thing mm. and of course Mary slipped around and he brought the uh, the Muslim brothers and they they brought September laws mm. for Sharia and he started cutting people's hands and arms and it was mm. awful okay. and that was a, a very bad era of, mm. in the Sudan and let me send you the song he did for Numeri after he sang against him <laughs> irony of all ironies
it's interesting that even though he sang, you know, he had to kind of sing for him mm-hmm. um, or in support of him. Yeah. He, that Muhammad Wadi is still seems to be, you know, he, people still know what he actually represents. Yeah, they do. And, and I was very interested in why they chose to forgive him. I, that's part of the questions I had for her. Why do we choose to forgive some artists and not others? Is it about a full body of work? Is it because we understand? Is it because we don't care that much as long as the song is good? Like, I'm trying to really understand what it is. Mm-hmm. And what are your kind of, what is, what is the sense that you're getting, I suppose, at, at the moment? I think, honestly, at the end of the day, we're humans and most people are pretty simple. And most of us just want to survive, really, and want to thrive. And if that means singing this one song, especially during a time like that, if you think about it, I was like, okay, I'm going to sing this one song and then you're going to leave me alone and you're not going to kill me and I can continue to do my shows. Okay. (laughs) You know, if you think about it, especially if you don't have another option and let's say you're, you know, and let's say, let's say you're the the, the primary breadwinner in the family and it's not a steady job already. So like, can you really afford to make enemies as powerful as the entire state? So for me, again, it just brings in who can afford to have their morality and strength of choices, you know? How big does the threat have to be before we break down? Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, Sorry, I'm just like processing. Mm, Of course. We're covering a lot of material. (laughs) Yeah, and it's like... (laughs) (laughs) Not light stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, my God. I guess I have I have two questions. Mm-hmm. Um, the first being like, what does pro-Islamist right um, mean, and how is it used within the Sudanese context? Because this is a term that we hear mainly from the American government, mm. but we don't necessarily hear the ways in which um, these states that are being accused of being what America likes to call Islamic which is not even really a word. Um, I was like, so they're just Muslims? <laughs> okay, well then <laughs> yeah. fine. You guys are children of the Crusades if you really want to be like that. <laughs> um, you know, so we, we never really hear what folks' own understandings are of these terms, right, within, within their own context, um, not from like a, a U.S. military um, perspective or agenda? Well, inside the Sudan context, uh, inside Khartoum, most people are, sure, most people are fairly religious, you know, it's not that it's a secular society or something, it's definitely a society that's been living under Sharia law for 30 years, um, So and, or, and already traditionally more like, a, we're very pro-rituals in general, so we're really into religious behavior. Um, so we don't really say Islamist or pro-Islamic because it's like it's assumed you like Islam. I mean, even though it should not be assumed that you like Islam because there's plenty of atheists not seeing the light of day over there. Um, but uh, it becomes more if you're pro-Sharia law and the manifestation of an Islamic system, um, which we used to refer to as Al-Kazan. So are you pro-Kazan or not? Kazan are to us represent the entire, what, what the U.S. is calling Islamist. We call, 
we're not really called we're we, we don't really use that word uh, it's like are you pro kazan or no, not exactly. Kazan, yeah exactly kazan are like a because everyone's muslim in this conversation you know so are you pro people who want to institute sharia law again in the system who are all about living under a muslim rule of law or not and there's plenty of very religious folks who don't want to live under uh, a religious law they want to live under a just law that leaves room for everybody there's also plenty of non-muslims living in sudan that have no reason to live under sharia law mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. yeah we don't use it exactly it's the world's most vague term no exactly and i, and I think it, it, for me it's really important to make this distinction mm. right, between being muslim and then being down for a casual Sharia there. Totally. Shire law. Exactly. Right. I was just like, it's like the difference between just being Christian and liking Easter and joining a cult. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and liking Easter. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Are you down with Easter or not? Nah? Right. <laughs> they have to be so extreme. <laughs> um, for sure. I mean, I think... I think like it, it's really important that we like define these things for ourselves, right? Because mm -hmm. even the ways in which the word Islamist, Islamic, these made-up words really mm -hmm. get thrown around in in pretty lefty conversations or circles as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because there really is a lack of education around, you know, what Sharia law is, mm -hmm. what um, just what's the not the noun and what's the verb of being Muslim. Right. So I, I once posted a, a photograph of myself with the headscarf on. Mm. I was traveling in Somaliland and it's obviously mandatory, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I posted a photo of me and, and, and a friend of mine from Somaliland and someone DM'd me, Zara, are you Islamic? I had no idea. I'm are like, you Islamic? I don't know what you're asking me. <laughs> what does that even mean? Are you Islamic? I was like, what is that? It sounds like you contracted a disease. <laughs> I'm like, babes, I have no idea what you're asking me. Of course, this person was from the US. Um, <laughs> and, you know, very involved in, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, etc. So this person's not a, a, you know, a ignorant individual. Like, they read in their own kind of context, mm -hmm. right? Um, or they're engaged in discourse in their own kind of context. But it just really shows how, like, pervasive this, like, weird, nondescript terminology is. Yep. And really problematic and orientalist um, readings are of, this I think, North Africa, East Africa, exactly. and just generally the Middle East. Orientalist is exactly the right word for it. It is very much that. And it's honestly to me just feels like modern day extensions of of the same arguments they were having at, at, around the crusades it feels like we're still continuing down the same path of thinking in terms of centering the west and centering christianity as the norm of the world and everything mm -hmm. else is othered when mm -hmm. if you're looking at it even in terms of physical numbers christianity <laughs> and the west are the minority they're actually the minority in numbers so mm. the whole approach to language has to totally be shifted and decolonized. Mm. And so earlier on in this conversation, you were talking about like the necessary decolonization that needs to happen within Sudan, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and we're talking about a decolonization of various forms. So mm -hmm. there's not just um, the British colonial kind of um, empire that kind of came in, but prior to that, um, 
there was like a whole other um you mentioned turk and mm -hmm. and egyptian and egyptian mm -hmm. yeah sorry my history is yeah. catchy there no, it's okay. The Egyptians, to be unfair to them, were also under Turkish occupation at the same time. They were just sent down to us because the Turks couldn't be bothered to come down personally. So <laughs> that's how fucked up they were. <laughs> we didn't even deserve a personal colonization. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, but like indirect rule is a really incredibly effective way yeah. of, of subjugating a people, Ab right? Absolutely, and creating a tension that still exists between Egypt and Sudan that no one knows how to address or talk about. And so, mm. when, unless we truly, honest, and, and then we don't even talk about, let's not even begin talking about the Gulf region, you know, in terms of the Arab Peninsula and the way they would literally come in and take slaves, gold, um, ivory, incense, uh, frankincense especially, ebony, all of that was stolen from up and down East Africa and in Sudan. And slavery was around, like the slave market and the auction blocks in Zanzibar are still standing. They were active mm. until the 1950s. People don't, this right. isn't long ago history. This is like yesterday history, you know? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's just, we need to start, I think, really cohesively looking at, at East Africa as a region, this new approach we have to the region as sub-Saharan versus, you know, North African, Arab versus, you know, it's, we need to start really reevaluating the way we look, because these borders are not real. So we need to go back to an older border if we want to really understand why things are set up the way they are right now. And why... Mm -hmm. And then how... Go, sorry, go ahead. No, and why, you know, people like the United Emirates and Qatar are heavily involved in our current politics and the negotiations that happen around our, our revolution. And now they own us. This one's like, so uh, did we just rewind history again? They own us again? What happened? Mm -hmm. I, I think like, w yeah, I'm wondering like the ways in which these types of um, power dynamics, right? And the inevitable exchanges that happen within these types of, of um, marriages for lack of a better term maybe they're like arranged marriages as opposed to consensual love marriages um <laughs> i mean that is true they were most basically like arranged marriages we're gonna sell you this girl in exchange for that <laughs> and this girl used to be africa yeah exactly so i'm wondering the ways in which these kinds of pairings that you've just spoken about um you know, get translated into the types of music that emerges, say, between Egypt and, and Sudan, um, even now, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's a lot of tension between the two and a lot of familial, familial tension. And there is a lot of exchange that happened between Egypt and Sudan until today for many, many reasons, from colonization to the fact that Nubia is straddling Egypt and Sudan and we have people in both areas and we've always come and gone. Um, and the border between Sudan and Egypt was open until 1956 and until today it's kind of open. You just kind of wander up there, you know? And so we have that as one side of it and then you have this inherent racism and anti-blackness from Egyptians that extends even to dark-skinned Egyptians. Um, and that is like cemented in the not so long ago history of them bringing slaves up um, mm -hmm. and not wanting to address that or even talk about it. And a lot of them don't even know the history of it. They don't know their own mm -hmm. history. Egyptians are just as lost as everybody else. Um, 
And I always like, thought of myself being Nubian as we were kind of like a bridge between Sudan and Egypt culturally, because we were the center of that exchange, um, geographically and culturally. Um, mm. But I don't know. I mean, Egypt and the exchange, I mean, our, our Egyptian brothers and sisters in the revolution and in the revolutionary feelings were with us during our revolution, just like we stood with them during theirs. So there is a brotherliness still there, you know, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. that just can't be denied. It just comes from familiarity. Mm. I mean, my understanding is that um, Wardi was also like, his music has also kind of been really important to other revolution Absolutely. that kind of occurred on the borders of Sudan. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would say so. Wardi cannot be underestimated in terms of his importance to the region. Wardi is one of the most popular musicians today all over East Africa and North Africa, regardless of what country you're in. You know, like his song, his famous concert in Ethiopia was legendary. People still talk about it. Um, he was one of the first Sudanese artists to really have appeal outside of that. And him being Nubian and singing in Nubian um, also gave him clout in a lot of southern Egypt. People, you know, southern Egypt and is not far away geographic, geographically and culturally from northern Sudan. Um, and lots of Nubians mm. there. So, yeah, Wardi's up there. So, Wardi singing for Nimeri was like a heartbreak for us. I'm glad. I'm, I mean, may he rest in peace forever, but I'm sort of like, oh God, I'm so glad he didn't live past this revolution. I would have just been sad to see if he did it. Right, because you're basically saying, what are the chances of him being co-opted into this, this casual opera? <laughs> yeah, can you imagine if Wardi was in this opera? Oh my God, I would just quit music. <laughs> um, so in terms of like where you were during this revolution, um, and the ways in which, because there was a, like an internet blackout mm -hmm, during the mm -hmm. majority of this revolution. Yeah. So where, where were you and, and what were the ways in which you were able to access? And then I suppose also, you know, you're on the one hand a researcher mm -hmm. um, that is incredibly thorough, but you're also an, an artist who I'm assuming was also inspired um, musically and creatively by this moment. And so, yeah, I guess the first question is where, where were you? And, and, and the second question really being, what are the ways in which this moment influenced and, and, and fed back into your own work? Well, I was on tour um, in the midst of what I can, in the midst of like a, a five year touring stint. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I was tired and outside the country and I wanted so desperately to go back, um, so, so desperately, but I couldn't go for many family reasons, um, to be honest. I just, uh, I had a lot of personal family things. I couldn't leave, the, and I had to come to the States. I couldn't leave. Um, but as I was touring, I, I know it was an internet blackout, but WhatsApp is a powerful thing. So I was on WhatsApp and on Signal, and I was getting the updates. <laughs> I was on a blow-by-blow blow everyday update. Like, I spent hours on my phone, hours, to the point where it was becoming mentally unhealthy, you know? Mm -hmm. And I cannot explain the level of FOMO <laughs> I was going through, fear of missing out. I was just, and I feel like a lot of us in the diaspora were that way because a lot of us in the diaspora 
I, I mean, maybe I'm generalizing, but I think for a lot of us, we felt like we didn't have an option but to leave Sudan. Even if you left not as a refugee necessarily, you became an economic refugee in a way, or you, you needed to, if you wanted your kids to thrive, you just needed to, beyond just surviving, but to actually thrive, you needed to go. So for a lot of us, it felt like we'd been waiting for this moment for so long. Um, and there was mm -hmm. a couple of short little mini explosions that had led up to it, but the level of, of, of this revolution was kind of unprecedented for our generation seeing the revolution start in the outskirts of Sudan, like outside of Khartoum, not be centralized in Khartoum, even though culturally it became usurped and centralized in there. But this revolution really started outside Khartoum. And for me to witness that from the outside, it really validated a lot of what I'd been saying about the fact that any true change in Sudan needs to come from outside of Khartoum. And it also for me validated the thing that I've always felt that Khartoum is not the center of Sudan, it's not the whole country, and nor should we want it to be the whole country. There's a lot more to Sudan than this. And once we let go the, of the idea of that, then real change can happen. So it felt like that was possible to come. And for me, artistically, it just kind of slammed me up against a lot of my own hang-ups. And I'd been having a creative writing block um, until that point and uh, I wrote a song called Manana that I leaked out through WhatsApp that's going to come out in um, in my next album with the Nubatones because I was with the Nubatones we were trying to work on a new album and it wasn't working and the revolution started and the songs started flowing <laughs> so and they were not necessarily songs about the revolution I think they were all self they were all self-directed questions Manana the song mm -hmm. is called Who Am I um, and the idea is if, if you take away the fighting and if you don't wait for this goal, if you don't wait for this cause, who are you? What defines you? You know, what is that question and how does it echo back to you? And for me, it was really, it was a turning of a new chapter for me emotionally and the letting go of a lot. Um, and that fed into my creativity. Um, I unfortunately had to wait until the end of 2019 to be able to go to Sudan. Um, but I went at the end of 2019. And I'm glad I waited until the revolution. Not, I'm glad I didn't... No, I'm glad I didn't. That's the wrong word. Um, while I was really upset I wasn't there during the events, um, I'm glad I went at the, uh, at the end of it and afterwards because I feel like the real change is coming now. The real hard work is coming now. And so mm. I'm glad I didn't see the revolution and the headquarters because I think I, my soul would have been crushed if I saw that break in front of my eyes. Um, so I'm glad I didn't see it. And it kind of catapulted me into a new relationship with Sudan and with my art and freed me from this con I, uh, of any sort of hang-ups I had about having to prove what it means to be Sudanese to Sudanese people or having to carry the burden of representing Sudan. It felt like there was a floodgate of music and artists and I'm so happy to be a part of a wave and that's all I wanted. And there's been a wave before that, but like the revolution was just, just so much art came out, so much art and so beautiful. Um, and we shot a music video in Sudan at the, in the beginning of 2020, which is gonna come out April 6th actually. 
that'll be before this episode comes out. Wait, so seriously? I will absolutely. Yeah, I'll send definitely. you. I'll send you the link. It's an all Sudanese production, all Sudanese team. Um, I went there. We did the casting there. Um, creative director, DP, everybody. It's an all Sudan magic show, as I call it. <laughs> من أنا لو ما حبيتك واستنيتك من أنا لو ما هتفت في سبيلك رجلي دهك قدرك في مسيرك من أنا كتمت وكان في لحظة سكون قبل الهبوب وانا واقفة مستنياك عمال أقول من أنا صدى السؤال زي الرعد يدق من جبل لجبل يقول لك لما التراب يغطي المدن والزمن يلف مبارح وبكره في ايده ويسيبك واقف براك وتسأل نفس السؤال ردك حيكون الفرق
The revolution broke the fear factor, and I think, and it broke a, a, um, a dam that was in a lot of us about the inevitability of anything happening. And even if we did, even if I do feel like we did not succeed, I don't feel like we've ended. Mm-hmm. Like the marathon is still Yeah, ongoing. it's a marathon. And there's like a, 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 like how, how do I phrase this? Like how, um widespread is that understanding mm-hmm. um h- how widespread is the understanding that the fear factor is broken i think or that that there's like a, a, a that the moment of the revolution is not a moment it's not a like a yeah it's not thing. like yeah it's, it's like not ongoing thing that's still happening and the the revolutionary moment is still, it's like protracted, right? Yeah, um, totally. I think in the hearts of a lot of people, th- that spark is still there, but it's dying slowly because it's literally being starved to death. If we do not get mm. Sudan off its knees economically, it is too exhausting to survive every day in order for you to be able to fight indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, we need to now shift our change on a on the way we treat each other on a personal level you know this is like beyond the systemic regime if we want to keep the spark alive we need to change the way we are with one another as sudanese people and that is Mm -hmm. something that was utopic and happening for a short amount of time but as soon as you are pressing people too much and starving them too much they just they become mean like you know and that's just humanity, unfortunately. Um, yeah. So I I hope it's widespread. I like to think Sudanese people in general are more optimistic than most. But that could also just mm. be me being all prejudiced about my own people. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> and then I, I guess like the, you know, accompanying part of that question is like, and it fits in very well with you know the, the the greater conversation we're having here is like to what extent are artists being repressed in the aftermath of that moment mm-hmm. um which brings me to think of you know what recently occurred um or what hajjuj recently went through which was exactly exactly i'm so glad um, you brought up hajjuj and dua because this the here's here's a prime example of that that happened not just because Can of you this. just explain to the audience who maybe doesn't know yeah them? so so hajjoj kuka is a film director and a community activist and builder um and he's uh very much in, and uh dua Tariq is also a uh, an activist in sudan and an artivist but um predominantly an activist and an organizer and they started something called the civic labs the civic labs is a space created to um be sort of like an incubator space for new artists and artist ideas. And so you can utilize it for rehearsals, to hang out, for readings, to practice. It's gonna, it has a recording studio in one of them in Khartoum. And the idea is to have a civic factory in every town around the country that will have a wow. recording studio, rehearsal spaces, performance spaces, and basically safe spaces for artists to gather. Um, and it's a wonderful idea. And the space in Khartoum is being run and managed by Dua Tariq. She's the manager of the venue and of the space. So there's gatherings that happen there regularly. The neighborhood 
um, had a bunch of members in its community that were from the former regime in Kazan and very, very, very Kazan. And they did not like the fact that this space was being run by a woman and that there was men and women hanging out together inside the space. So they called the police to come in and harass them. There is no law that allows the police to come in and harass them for this. The police come in, they harass them anyways, and then they slap Dua across the face when she comes to stop them um, in, the middle of, in the middle of the street without any respect for her or her authority because how dare she speak to them as a female, even though she's the in charge of this space. Um, when a bunch of other organizers and youth from inside come out to help Dua when they hear the, 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 the yelling and the shouting, they come out to help her, turns into this huge fight between like everybody and arguing back and forth. So they take all of them, Dua included, and throw them in the back of the pickup trucks and take them to the holding cells. Um, there's also more slapping around that happens there. And even though it takes two months to get their, their cases to court and heard, and they all came out innocent, but they spent two months in jail waiting to become innocent. Mm. And mm. It, the only reason it worked out, as and this, by the way, is a, a great case scenario. Supposedly now it has worked out great because they are innocent. They yeah. came out after two months of being in jail for two months. But now, and, and, but the reason they came out is because we started this huge international campaign. Um, exactly. And there was all this pressure from outside because they are both privileged individuals in their connections. So if we weren't all on top of it, how many du'as and hajjojs are out there? You know what I mean? Right. And if, this, if it's the community that's calling the police on you and harassing you, how, how far have we come along? Isn't the idea of the revolution not just a revolution in regime, but a revolution in thoughts, a revolution in behavior? Mm. Um, and behavior doesn't need a radical anything. It just happens in personal interactions. So to mm. me, I'm just like, change starts with you. If you're not going to act right, nothing going to be right. I think this is something that I've actually taken for granted in, in many ways. Is um, So like obviously Sudan has an incredibly rich musical history, mm -hmm. right? Um, and we've spoken about parts of that. Um, but I guess the question then is like, to what extent does music occupy publics mm. in Sudan? Um, well, it used to occupy a lot of public spaces until there was the ban in the early 1990s, and then it became just kind of wedding music and religious music. Um, but we love songs. Which is still valid. Yeah, which is still valid. Like it, they couldn't stop music altogether. Um, music still happens in gatherings. Um, one thing Sudanese people, I think, are really famous for is that people hang out and then, like, there's this thing we do where we ask each other, so who has what memorized? And then everyone just starts to sing together. And I think that mm -hmm. has maybe, I don't know if it, that's just something we've always been like or if this is a result of not having access to concert venues and to musicians regularly for decades. So we've started to compensate. Um, but as I traveled all over Sudan, I think it has a lot to just to do with the fact that from an education, we're a musically educated culture. I, re mm. I and I believe in that. I, education isn't necessarily just institutionalized. And so I think this is a reason why the regime couldn't crush music completely. People love music too much and they practice it. And 
imbue it in a lot of different rituals and ceremonies. So you can't just remove it altogether. This, this thing of like who has what memorized and just like jamming. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, I think is incredibly beautiful. Um, I want to just backtrack mm -hmm. just because I'm going to patch in, I think, this last track that we didn't speak about. Sure. The Nada Al... Nadal Gala. Nadal Gala. Yeah, right. Nadal Gala decided recently to take it, after this pro-military song, to take it to another level where she put out a video hating on all communists and all atheists and anyone who's not a part of her beloved regimes. I don't know who her beloved regime is. It's still a mystery to me. I was like, so who's this guy we're singing for? <laughs> Again, who's in charge of us? <laughs>
than all of us put together because she ain't never been on the wrong side of the tracks. <laughs> just, like, just like endorsing, endorsing. She's, yep. <laughs> zero, zero. More, her morality is very clear. It's about who pays her bills. I mean, honestly, I mean, why not? <laughs> artists everywhere do it, you know, like all these artists that pose for brands that are using child labor and like sweat factories and they're like proudly rocking the brand and being like, I'm a radical independent artist that doesn't believe in exploitation as I wear this thing made by small children. <laughs> mm. And then perform it like a Barack Obama inauguration. Right, but none of us call you a sellout. <laughs> and Guantanamo is still open. Yo, don't even that's... get me started on Guantanamo Bay. Because I was just like, <laughs> when the U.S. putting sanctions on Sudan, I was just like, you have Guantanamo Bay. You have the mother load of torture houses. Like, you should be under sanctions. <laughs> Literally. Um... But if you can please just introduce that track yes. and the title of it and who she is and those types of things. Okay, so Nandal Gala is a very popular traditional singer in Sudan. She does weddings. Um, at, by, at this point, she's like what I would consider a, uh, a pop diva of sorts. Um, but she is part of the Ghanayat culture and Ghanil Banat culture. But yeah, I would consider her a pop, pop folklore um, artist. Ajesh Karab. So this is another pro-military song that Nadal Gala has decided to put out um, also in January of this year. I think the military paid her a lot of money. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so this is another pro-military song that she has put out. Um, and this one is uh, just basically uh, comes to me sounds like Aghanil Hamas, which are like the the... The, in Sudan, like I said before, there is the tradition of um, traditional singers who would sing Hamas uh, means uh, excitement uh, or, yeah, I think excitement. They're basically songs to hype you up for, for, you know, and so they hype up your bravery, your strength, your whatever. They're usually sung before a war happens or before the warriors go off into whatever battle. Um, okay. And... She, this kind of reminded me of that vibe, but she's doing it for the whole military. It was back in the day, you would do it before the tribes, before the warriors went into a war, but more commonly over the last 150 years, you would just kind of do it to praise the strength of the warriors in the gathering, of the men in, the, in your tribe and in your village. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Look, I won't lie, the song slaps. Yo, see, didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you all the songs slap, though? They're all really good songs, and it's the problem. You're like, damn it. You know, it's like, why? And they hire the best musicians for this stuff. I'm telling you, it is not an accident. And like one of the songs that um, 
God, one of the songs that was sung um, for Numeri was, not for Numeri, after Numeri, it was written by Muhammad, uh, by uh, Mahjub Sharif, Sudan, like the people's poets, basically. Great song, great lyrics. If you didn't know who paid for it and why they made you sing it, you would just think it was an amazing song. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So it's not an no, accident. They yeah, their focus. It's the weaponizing of music by the state is not accidental. It's not brand new. It's as old as time. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. I think that's great to put that in. That song is really as of time. Um, but awesome, Alsada. Thank you so much for um, being so generous and gracious with your time and your passion. My absolute um, pleasure. I'm super happy I could share this with you. And I'm so grateful that you are sharing it with the world. The more we know about each other, the better. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, and it's also been so wonderful to meet you. And hopefully it won't o- only be a virtual a virtual thing. Inshallah. Um, hopefully in the future we can make these connections, you know, more solid and tangible. Inshallah. It'd be amazing if there was like... Um, a virtual performance of your podcast you know how like you're gonna have the band play it but if you can have it'd be dope if you had a different artist come in and sing with the band from the different countries oh my god i wish uh, i just need like a blesser basically i need like a you'll find one i believe in you <laughs> <laughs> someone just give you. you money literally um i have one last question sure have you ever performed in south africa before no and i've always wanted to honestly the prices of the tickets is so insane it is so expensive Mm -hmm. to get from one side of the continent to the other to the point where it's detrimental for promoters um yeah so they might as well bring in someone who's a bigger act from outside or a huge local act that won't cost as much and then and do it that way but i think that's short-term thinking what we should be thinking about long-term again with this whole thing of decentralizing the west and europe in general it's really building our infrastructure for music and for music marketing and music consumption um we Mm -hmm. as africans need to consume africa we need to be the number one consumer of africa um and that's the only way we're going to start seeing each other because i was like we should be seeing each other why do we need to go to europe to hear about each other you know yeah, yeah. I mean, even if you look at like concertina music in Sudan, mm-hmm. like the accordion was is massive. Yeah. Concertina music is massive in South Africa. It's also massive in Colombia. Have these three regions ever communicated around this? No. And why? Because colonial powers do not want you to know you have that much in common already. I'm really, I'm serious <laughs> about it. I was just like part of this whole lie about keeping us in isolation and that we were in isolation is though so they don't realize we don't realize like how together we really are. Because if we all came together, mm-hmm. it's over for them. It's a wrap. Yeah, like this conversation is, is something that needs I longevity do. and energy because it's the only way we can like build the momentum to kind of make these moments happen. I totally agree. And, I'm in t- and I really like the actual idea. I like the idea of returning to radio as a way of communicating with each other uh, th- across the continent. Um, podcasts, mm. radios, independent shows, mm. ways of really like going in depth. Yeah. The big, the big thing is translation, and that's something that yeah, that's you know, the we need to also valorize polyglots in, in a whole new way as well. Mm, that is true. The language thing is real. So great to meet you, Elsa. Wonderful so to meet you for too. jumping on board and being willing to to be game basically <laughs> on a on a format that is not necessarily traditional. So thanks yeah. again. I'm super excited. Thank you for doing it this way. I think it's very creative and actually really powerful approach. 
I really, really love this episode because I think it encompasses exactly what the Conjure Talking Drum podcast is about. Um, really finding ways to connect, commiserate, laugh, and unpack situated socio-political complexities across contexts, right? But through music. Um, this episode was produced by myself, Zara Julius, and Al Sara, with support from a Breathing Space grant from Prohelvisha Johannesburg. Music for this podcast was produced by Bully, and as always, you can find links to all the content discussed in this episode in the show notes on konjo.co.za, that's K-O-N-J-O A special thanks to Tamado um, Shekhaldin for her appearance in this episode. Tamado um, is um, the one half of Ostinato Records, who's been really um, instrumental in uh, reissuing a lot of music from Sudan from the 70s onto various platforms. Of course, please share and rate this podcast five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. And this is the last interview for the season. And in two weeks' time, we'll get to listen to the live recording or live taping of the Talking Drum event that was held in April out in the Cradle of Humankind with South African drummer Tumi Mokorosi and his band Sidebar interpreting tracks from all the episodes in the season. So please be sure to subscribe for that. And until then, stay safe.